before five, I think, Rainbow's in here with me this morning. Hallelujah. It's uh, wonderful. Well, folks, we're going to uh, move into a time of our discussion point now. Um, but the first thing we do, of course, is to have a look at our memory verse for this week. I think we're up to week 20 now. And the memory verse for this week is from Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Of course, the context here is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he's assuring them that God will provide. And uh, we're reminded, of course, in that story that Jeanette just read, that our God will provide. So Jesus is saying the first and the most important thing is to follow God, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. A wonderful, wonderful assurance of the love of our God. Well, we're going to continue with our series on, on the rapture. This is the ninth in our series, and I thought I'd finished this week. I, I said last week I just had a few more points to make, but actually when I started getting into it, putting together my notes for today, I realized that I wasn't really going to get all that far at all. But that's okay, because we want to do this properly. And as it says right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, for the person who teaches this, there will be a blessing. For the person who hears, there will be a blessing. So we want to wring as much blessing as we possibly can out of our journey through the book of Revelation. You might recall that I read a quote from J. Rodman Williams' Renewal of Theology. It's a very large book that runs for close to a thousand pages. And this is what he says. To be sure, the church will never be subjected to the wrath of God that always falls upon God's adversaries, but it will be sustained in the midst of it all. The sealing of the 144,000 in Revelation 7, 1 to 8, who unquestionably are saints in the time of the Great Tribulation, is testimony to this fact. The saints are protected from, I repeat, not removed from, the wrath of God. Now, I'm going to surprise you shortly because there is a period Rodman Williams says, during which the church will actually be persecuted. Very quickly, just reviewing the points that we looked at last week in support of a post-tribulation rapture, the overarching idea, of course, is that there can be only one second coming. There can't somehow be a, a showing of Jesus only to the saints and then, as it were, a proper second coming a little later on. And secondly, although I didn't make a large point of this last week, there will be signs. And one of the major differences between 
a pre-tribulation rapture doctrine and a post-tribulation rapture doctrine is that the pre-tribulation doctrine says there will be no signs. Christ will come without warning. And there is no point in trying to find signs of his coming to take up the saints and to resurrect the saints who have already died. But if you adhere to the doctrine of a post-tribulation rapture, then signs will be very, very important to you. And so Rodman Williams goes to great lengths to describe the signs that will point to this second coming of Jesus and the post-tribulation rapture. So the signs are not necessarily in order of importance. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit that first happened, of course, at Pentecost, 50 days after Christ was crucified. But according to Rodman Williams and many other biblical scholars, the present-day growth of the Pentecostal church is a sign, and that was something that Peter actually pointed to when he made his declaration in Acts 2.17. A second sign is that the gospel will be preached to the whole world and uh, the fullness of the number in terms of the Gentiles and in Israel will be realized. In other words, God's purposes for human history will have been completed when God's number have come to him and when the gospel is actually preached to the whole world doesn't necessarily mean that the whole world actually receives the gospel. They might hear it but not receive it. Another sign is that there will be an increase in evil. And I guess for many, as you look around the world today, you can see plenty of evidence of that. At the same time, there will be religious apostasy. Uh, Christian love in the world will decline. And then we have the Antichrist. And as we suggested last week, the Antichrist is not necessarily a person. And the Bible actually stipulates that the Antichrist is absolutely anyone who denies Jesus Christ's first coming as a human being. And uh, the final point that we made last week was that the man of sin or lawlessness that's spoken about in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 9 uh, will become apparent. And uh, we're going to say a little bit more about the man of sin or lawlessness a little later this morning. I mentioned last week that we would uh, finish our discussion today by considering the two beasts, one out of the sea and one from the earth, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation and all of the extraordinary phenomena that happen on the earth and in the heavens at the end of human history. Actually, when I got into researching this and, and writing it up, I realized that we're definitely not going to finish today. We'd be here until at least lunchtime, probably until dinner time. So we will have to take a couple more weeks to complete this, but that's okay. We want to do a proper job on this, and I don't want to leave you hanging with too many questions. Uh, in the air because this is an area where there's a lot of discussion 
and a lot of confusion as well. So I just want to focus this week on the two beasts, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. And these are described in the book of Revelation chapter 13. The beast out of the sea appears in the first verse and the beast out of the earth in the 11th verse. A couple of important points to make, that there is a connection between the beasts and the dragon, who's mentioned in the previous chapter in Revelation 12. Uh, the dragon is Satan. The Bible makes that very clear. And Satan makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And that's in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12. And obviously those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus are Christians. And finally, there's a connection between the dragon, that is Satan, and the serpent in the garden that we read about all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now I'm going to read um, during the course of our discussion the whole of Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. So there's a fair bit of scripture here to go through. And what I'm going to do with chapter 13 is to read through the chapter and break off at points to explain what the scripture actually means. Of course, being apocalyptic writing is not all that easy for us to get inside the head, as it were, of John who received this vision from God and who, who wrote it down. And uh, we weren't living at the time he was. We might have understood it better at the time because of the use he makes of metaphors and uh, Old Testament history as well. So looking at chapter 13 of uh, Revelation and beginning in verse 1, and again I'm using uh, the New Living Translation for all of my scriptures today. Then I, that's John, saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And uh, this is a reference to the dragon or Satan mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. Continuing verse 1, And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and mouth of a lion. This is a combination of the three fierce animals mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, which of course is also an example of apocalyptic writing. Continuing verse 2, And the dragon, that is Satan, gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. So the beast, this beast that comes up out of the sea is Satan's exact representative. Not Satan, but an exact representative, or if you like, ambassador for Satan. And in fact, 
this representative has a mortal wound to one of its heads. Now, a mortal wound, of course, is a wound that kills. But yet this beast rises up from the sea alive. And it's a, a reference to the way in which Jesus crushed, completely defeated the devil through his death on the cross at Calvary that we've just remembered in our communion ceremony. But you see, through the sinfulness of humanity, Satan was given life again. And so although there's a mortal wound to one of these heads, the beast as an exact representation of Satan still lives. And we see in verse 3, this is what John saw. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast who is this great beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. That's three and a half years. That aligns with the first half of the period of tribulation. Verse 6 of chapter 13, And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, all those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship to the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. And so here we see there's a distinction between those whose names are written in the book of life and those who are not. That is, there's a distinction between the Christian church and everybody else. Verse 9, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison and anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. Verse 10 continues. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. In my notes, I wrote, ouch, exclamation mark. I thought Rodman Williams was saying, we will not be subject to the wrath of God. And yet here we see a very plain statement. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Now you might recall that in our discussion about pre-tribulation rapture, we noted that this applied to those who became Christians during the tribulation period. That is, they weren't 
subject to the rapture because they became Christians after the rapture happened. But if you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, then this seems to indicate that if you are a Christian living through the first half of the tribulation, then you will be subject to terrible persecution. Now, as it turns out, verses 9 and 10, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. These two verses are, um, are among the most difficult to interpret in the whole of the Bible. One possible understanding is that although the beast might persecute Christians who are living on the earth at the time, nevertheless, the beast does not have authority over them because their names are written in the book of life. The period of time of persecution for the saints is 42 months or 120, uh, sorry, 1,260 days or as the King James often says, a time, a times and half a time. That's three and a half years. And that aligns with, if you like, the first half of the seven-year period of tribul tribulation. So during this first half of the seven-year tribulation, God actually gives the beast authority. To per he couldn't do it unless at least God, by permissive will, was allowing it uh, to happen. Verses 9 and the first half of 10, or sorry, the first half of verse 10 more particularly, anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Basically, that's saying that, well, if the beast is going to take you to prison, go to prison. Don't resist. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword is actually an exhortation for Christians living through this persecution not to take up arms but as it were, to suffer willingly, to endure and remain faithful. In many ways, I can imagine that that would be much more difficult to do than to take up arms and fight against the beast and the world of ungodly people who actually worship the beast and who worship Satan. Now, it is helpful at this point to skip ahead to Revelation 17, where we read about the harlot woman, which represents or who represents Babylon. She sits on a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemy and has seven heads and ten horns, and which is obviously the beast from the sea. Revelation 17 shows that this beast did exist, it uses the term was, that it received a mortal blow, that is, the term is not, and is going to break out in evil fury. Literally, all hell will break loose on earth. And that's 
referenced by the expression uh, is to ascend from the bottomless pit. But furthermore, this beast is headed for perdition, which is an old-fashioned word meaning destruction. So this beast is past, present, and future. Now, of course, if you've been around Christian circles for very long, you'll know that there's been a lot written about the seven heads, or as it says in Revelation 17, the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Is seated? Let's try is seated. That sounds a little bit better. The seven mountains most likely refer to Rome. Uh, there is also uh, seven kings. Five have reigned. One is reigning and one is to come. They most probably represent Roman emperors. The beast itself is referred to as an eighth king, most likely the final eschatological king of whom the dreadfully cruel Roman emperors were types or what they were archetypes. And, and under those Roman em emperors, of course, Christians were mightily persecuted. They were dreadful times. They were times of poverty. The average person wasn't very well off at all, partly because of the level of taxation. Any opposition was put down cruelly. And, of course, Christians faced massive, massive persecution. So there's that historical element, and at the time... John was writing, which many scholars would say was around about AD 90. There'd been a series of uh, Roman emperors uh, who could be identified historically, and many writers have. But after we've dealt with those seven heads, the seven Roman emperors, there's this eighth king, the beast representative of the final eschatological king. And uh, we see this unfolding in the first half of the tribulation. In Revelation 17, John is further told that the horns are ten kings that receive power with the beast. They're representative of the totality of earthly powers at the end of history. They serve the beast and they wage war against Christ. But ultimately, he defeats them. So with that background, just let me read through Revelation chapter seven, uh, 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness 
And I saw a woman sit on a, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which is seven heads and the ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition or destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and one other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not, and is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, is going to perdition. This is the reference to this beast being like those Roman emperors, only much, much worse. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. That is Babylon. And Babylon is not so much a physical city these days as it is a worldview, a way of believing, a way of thinking, a way of behaving. The Babylon, Babylonian system exploits people. And sad to say, from my perspective as an economist, I would say that much of what happens in the name of economics is Babylonian in nature. It's exploitative in nature. It doesn't create wealth for people. It creates poverty and misery. The reason being that the self has become the center of economic activity. And I could speak for a long, long time about this. You see, the thing about Babylon is that the Babylonian system harnesses the incredible power to create wealth that is inherent 
in humankind. Remember Deuteronomy 8.18? God says to Israel, don't forget that I am the one who gave your arm the power to create wealth. And the economic system is, if you like, the method by which wealth is created, but it is corrupted by Babylon. There are really only two ways. There's the way of God, which is epitomized by the kingdom of Solomon. When there was wealth, there was peace, and there was security. But in contrast, when the system becomes self-centered, self-focused, when it moves away from a belief in God and an activity based on his precepts, then it becomes like the economy under the king of Tyre. It becomes like Babylon, where it consumes people and brings about great misery and poverty through exploitation. And I, I won't um, say any more about that, but you will see reference to Babylon throughout the Bible, and Babylon is always representative of an evil, godless society. And you see, Satan is in charge of that one because although Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross, sinful humanity actually empowers Satan in the world today. We've overcome. We've overcome the power of sin because of the blood of Jesus that we celebrate in our communion each week. We've overcome. Our names are written in the book of life. But you see, those whose names are not written in the book of life have a tendency to go down this Babylonian route. And you can see the misery that that has caused. Let me go back now to Revelation 13 and talk about the beast out of the earth. John goes on with his revelation and he says this, Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because a little lamb will just have the very beginnings of, of horns. Um, well, some, of course, have been genet genetically uh, bred not to have horns, but, but sheep, male sheep, have horns, as it were, naturally speaking. And uh, this, so this, this beast actually has characteristics that make him look like Jesus. But when he speaks as with the voice of a dragon. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, it, that he roars. Dragon here is representative of Satan. And he most likely speaks like Satan spoke as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, not necessarily shouting, growling, roaring, but speaking in a way which is persuasive of people. This beast is not as terrifying as the beast that comes up out of the sea, but is another embodiment of Satan, the deceiver. 
this dragon is not necessarily harsh, but represents the devil as a, a being who is deceptive. Verse 12 goes on to say, he that is the beast that comes out of the earth exercised all the authority of the first beast. And he required all the earth and his people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So the purpose, the prime purpose of the beast of the earth is to direct worship toward the beast out of the sea. And, and if you want to get a bit of a picture for what this might be like, think of those videos, clips you might have seen of, of Hitler when he was leading Germany, of Stalin when he was leading Russia, or Mao Zedong. Have a look at some of that footage, at the way in which these people were virtually worshipped, despite the fact that they were evil in intent and evil in action. Verse 13, he that is the beast that comes out of the earth did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. You know, a counterfeit miracle. This was a miracle in the Old Testament, remember? When the prophet Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. The statue of the beast commanded anyone refusing to work, uh, sorry, commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. And so here we have another circumstance under which believers would die because they're not going to worship the statue. It's worth noting that this beast, this second beast, the beast that comes up out of the earth, is actually religious in nature. It organizes worship on behalf of the beast out of the sea. In Revelation 16 verse 3, this beast is referred to indeed as a false prophet. Well. Wow starting to look a little bit like the church, or at least parts of the church. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Now again, this is verses 16 and 17. A lot has been written about the mark of the beast. And you can go on YouTube and you could watch literally a week's worth of YouTube videos on the mark of the beast. While many writers have focused on the physical mark, many, while many have focused on the physical mark, 
consistent with the idea of God's seal on his people, I think the mark is better understood as total capitulation to Satan. Total capitulation to Satan. You see, those who are sealed as gods are the ones whose name is written in the book of life, the ones who have surrendered to Jesus Christ, the ones who have become Christians. You see, we're totally capitulated to him, to Christ. Right? We live and we breathe and we have our being in Christ. We're the ones who have the seal of God. It's not a physical thing, this seal of God. It's a spiritual thing. And so too, I believe it is with the mark of the beast. If you want, you can go and read the millions of words that have been written about technologies and, and government policies and, and plastic cards and so on. I really don't think that is going to get you very far. The mark of the beast is something in the heart. It's, it's giving yourself over to the satanic realm. And let me tell you, folks, in this life, there's only two options. You're a follower of God through Jesus Christ or you're a follower of Satan. There's no halfway house and there's no other option. You're given over to Jesus or you're given over to Satan. You either have the seal of God or the mark of the beast. There are no other options. Moving on, and I could spend a lot of time on this, of course, and many have, but I just want you to think about this. It, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we could understand the seal of God as something which is spiritual, but the mark of the beast as something which is, is physical. I believe they are both spiritual and they have to do with the alignment of the heart. Verse 18 of Revelation chapter 13 says this, Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. Now, a lot has been written about the number 666 as well. Um, I, I, I dare say millions of words in this context too. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the verse virtually gives you the answer. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. Here's the answer. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Well, look, one way of interpreting this, again, on, on a spiritual level, has to do with the fact that six is not seven. Now, let me explain that. Seven is the number of perfection, and seven, of course, is associated with Jesus, with his victory, with the completeness of his victory over evil through his suffering on the cross. Seven is used in the Old Testament as indicating completeness or perfection as well. Now, six, you see, is not seven. Right? Six is not completeness. It's not perfection. 
And some writers, including Rodman Williams, suggest that 666 might, in fact, represent the final effort of the beast to attain divine status. Which you could see, that was Satan's problem. Satan wanted to achieve divine status. I don't have time today. I've written some notes on this. I don't really have time. I don't want to draw it out for too long. But you see, um, you can get into all sorts of theological um, wrestling matches here. You see, if God created Satan, then God cannot be wholly good because Satan is bad. Satan is evil. And um, there are branches of Christianity. There is a line of thought in Christianity that suggests that, that God actually created Satan and he put it in the heart of Satan to do evil and he also put it in the heart of Adam and Eve to sin. Now, that, in a sense, suggests that we don't have free will. No created beings have free will. But there's some biblical evidence that strongly suggests that it was Lucifer who became Satan. Lucifer was created as an angel. Lucifer was the angel in charge of all of the music in heaven. And Lucifer perhaps was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And you see, he witnessed God giving dominion to humankind. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, when God created men and women, he gave them dominion. In other words, he delegated to them royal authority from on high, from the very throne of God. Lucifer wanted dominion over the earth, but he didn't get it. But he saw the way to get it was to deceive Adam and Eve, and of course, he did succeed. He wanted that authority. And through original sin, humanity gave up the authority that God had given them. Jesus, of course, in defeating Satan at the cross, restored the fullness of our authority, the fullness of our dominion. But you see, not all the world accepts Jesus, and those who don't actually empower Satan to be active and powerful in the world today. So the number 666 could in fact suggest this last almighty effort by Satan and those who are followers of Satan, that is those whose names are not written in the book of life, their final fling, as it were, their final attempt to overthrow Jesus Christ. And as, of course, as we know, it doesn't work. Well, let me move on quickly to a couple more points. In relation to the two beasts, there are similarities between them and the man of sin. 
The first beast, in a sense, is secular, and the second is religious. Remember, that second beast actually kind of winds up people to worship the first beast. So there's the, it, it, that second beast kind of a bit like the church, because in church we try to wind you up to worship Jesus Christ. The second beast is trying to wind up those of the earth, the world, to worship the first beast. Rodman Williams suggests that the man of sin is a composite of the two, not Satan himself, but his instrument. And the beast or beasts has the number of man. Now look, if you accept this line of thinking, then the man of sin and the beasts themselves are humankind in final revolt against God. Humankind in final revolt against God. They'll have their leaders. They'll have their worldview. They'll persecute those who do not agree with them. So this is something worth thinking about. Could it be that the man of sin and that the beasts are actually representative of fallen humankind in its final revolt against God? Remember when we were talking about the pre-tribulation rapture, when we were going through that period of tribulation, we noted. Now I've forgotten what it was we noted. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll think of it later if it's important. My final point that I've actually written down here is that uh, during the period of the two beasts, there is reference to two witnesses, which takes us backwards a little bit in Revelation to chapter 11. Now, just a reminder, of course, that Revelation is not necessarily written in historical sequence, right? The, the vision was not necessarily in historical sequence, and it was written as John received it. The, the two uh, witnesses are also referred to as olive trees or lampstands. In Zechariah chapter 4, they're also referred to as two anointed who stand by the Lord of the whole earth in relation to rebuilding of the temple. And uh, in terms of our contemporary times, they represent the believing church who bear witness at the end of history. Not until they have finished their task does the beast descend from the bottomless pit. And, and, and you see, their task is actually to, to speak out, to speak out for God. And this is the same uh, witness that is referred to as the gospel being preached to all the nations. And uh, two witnesses, of course, were required under Old Testament law in order to convict anybody of, of a crime. And so they're representative of the believing church, if you like, the remnant church, because not all of the church actually believes the word of God. They are the believing church 
they bear witness to the truth at the end of history. And it's not until the gospel has actually been preached to all the nations that the beast from the sea is actually free to ascend from the bottomless pit. Well, folks, that's quite a lot to take in. And uh, we will continue this uh, probably next week, although uh, we might take a break at some stage because it's pretty heavy going for everybody, including me, because it takes a long, long time to prepare uh, this material because, indeed, there has been so much written about it and you can end up going all over the place. But it's really important, I think, because what we understand about the sequence of events at the end of human history is very important in terms of how we behave today and how we react to what we see in the world around us 